Dr. Shai-Sukunda for the second part of the series. Good morning, everyone. I, uh, just before beginning, I should say that to a certain extent, uh, today, viewer discretion is advised. We're going to be dealing with some very troubling um, images and, and problems, which is not a terrible thing. thing. We have to confront the reality, but more than any of the other um, units in this series, this will be uh, pretty graphic and upsetting. Before we do that, though, I just wanted to briefly recap what we did last week and try to explain a bit more as to what we were trying to do. I used the word denial to explain a phenomenon in Medrash Eich which I assume reflects a phenomenon in the real world as well, and that is a form or different forms of denial in the sense that the Chorban had just taken place a few hundred years earlier when Eich was written. The wounds were very much still fresh. In fact, basically no Jews were living in Jerusalem and in that part of the country, but had moved north into uh, northern Israel, the Galil primarily. And nevertheless, despite the freshness of the wounds, there was an attempt to deny the full extent, to almost try to ignore the full extent of the destruction. And that, that happened in a number of ways. One was a very interesting section towards the beginning, the very beginning of Medrash Eicha, that pictures Jerusalem at its height, at its prime, thriving, enormous, growing, multiplying, um, depicting the little back alleyways and the, um, and the different uh, marketplaces, really as a metropolis that once was but no longer is. Thank God, actually, it now is. But when Medrash Eicha you know, was written, Jerusalem was desolate, certainly from a Jewish perspective it was desolate. That was one form of, of let's say, a denial here. There's another aspect that we pointed to, which, we're, which we might get to in a, in, a, in a further class, and that is the denial of the extent of God's wrath. Right? We're gonna, today we're going to focus God's wrath. But for example, again at the beginning of the Medrash, there are various psukim verses that are used to um, explain that as much as it looks like that God really just went all out um, in anger and in retribution of our sins, really it wasn't so terrible. It wasn't so um, uh, it wasn't so awesome. And there are different midrashic twists on words. So, for example, God is described as acting ke'oyev as an enemy we might think that means that God acted like an enemy. And the word as signifies the, you know, the comparison between God and an enemy. But instead, this letter chaf is seen as softening the word. God wasn't really an enemy. He was just like an ele- enemy. And there were a few examples of this. So that's another element of, um, of denial, that as much as it looks like God really was extremely mad and acted like an enemy, it was not to the full extent of an enemy. And finally, what we spent the most time on doing was looking at a fascinating group of stories, 11 stories, really riddles, that that described riddling debates, as they're called. In other words, contests that involve riddles between Athenians, people from Athens, and Jerusalemites. And the purpose, the overarching pur- purpose of these stories, and even the section that follows them, is to show how really 
not only was Jerusalem great, but Rabati Bagoyim. They were great in knowledge, as the way the Midrash understood it. And these stories were a way of demonstrating that greatness. As much as Athens is supposed to personify wisdom of the West, nevertheless, the Jerusalemites were, um, were smarter. And what we wanted to do with that is say that in this space, in the space provided by these riddles, there is a denial also. There's a denial of the defeat of the Jews. What does that mean? Now, of course, the Jews had been defeated by the West, literally Rome, not Greece. But they had been defeated. They had been destroyed. And if they wanted to, they could have pictured maybe in the stories that they told an alternate reality, a reality when the Jews bested the, the, uh, the West militarily, politically. That's not what they did. Instead, they said, as much as we have been beaten and we've been beaten bad, that's only in the realm of politics, of sovereignty, of governance. Yes, we're no longer sovereign in our lands. But at the same time, we ultimately do best them when it comes to knowledge, chachma, and even not just the Romans, but Greece, the ultimate symbol of wisdom. And those stories were a way of doing that. We also pointed out, though, that there's so many stories, 11 stories in total, that each, they take a lot of space. There's a lot of energy invested in this exercise, if you will. And it seems that there's another thing going on, which is going to lead into what we're doing today, and that is kind of, as Marshall McLuhan used to say, the message is the medium. In other words, the way these stories are told about Jews besting Athenians is through a riddle. There seems to be, a, the riddle seems to play a central role in Medrashecha. First in these stories, as a device to beat the Athenians, but also pointing to a, a bigger riddle, a larger riddle. And that ultimate, enormous, I think ultimately unsolvable riddle is Echa, in a certain sense. How was this destruction, how did it happen? Why did it happen? Why was the extent of the destruction in Jerusalem and later in Betar so great? That riddle, seems to, it seems that the, the energy invested in working through these riddles ultimately points to the broader riddle. And that's what we're going to start with today. I did this source last week, but now we can do it inside. And that's source number one in the handout. There's a disagreement as to how to understand the word Eicha. Would anyone like to read this source? Source number one, we can read it in English. Any volunteers? Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's not, it's actually not simple, such a simple passage, and I want to, you know, spend a little time analyzing it. Of course, the, the, the dispute itself is, you know, something we talked about last week, is fairly simple. The word echa, which mean, we might translate it as how, um, but a diff, two different kinds of hows, um, is how is the sentence to be understood? Echa yashva bedad. Is it a real question, so to speak? This is how I'm interpreting the source. How could this possibly have happened? How could you, the Jewish people, let this occur? And that seems to be the way that Rabbi Yehuda is understanding it as a language of tochecha, while Rabbi Nechemi understands it, no, as a language of lament. It's not a real question that, that wants to find out a real answer. It's simply saying how, or better, alas. 
Yes. It's possible, and that's going to be a path that's going to occur later in the Midrash. But the reason why I think that's part of what's going on, but you might be right, is based on the verses that are used to prove these different positions. So let's just first talk about uh, the, um, the the position of Kina. That Lashon Echa, the language of Echa, means lament. And this is really a, a strange sort of verse to use to prove that the word Echa means lament. That verse is from Genesis. When does it occur? Right, when God calls out to Adam. When when is that? Right, after the sin. And normally one would understand the verse as saying, where are you, as I translated it. So how exactly, and I'm throwing this question out to all of you, how exactly is Rabbi Nehemia proving from the use of the word, not Echa, but Ayeka, um, how is it proving that this is a language of lament? Maybe Hashem was lamenting the fact that I created you and what, what, what good came of it. Correct. In other words, it's kind of a, it's a midrashic interpretation used to prove, so to speak, linguistically that Eicha means lament. And it, it does seem to be something in that direction. The, the immediate problem in the Pasuk and, and Breshi that we don't need to deal with now is God would never have to ask, where are you? God is omnipotent and knows. And therefore, Chazal say that something else must be going on, and they seem to be working in that direction. That sort of, how, where are you? Where have you gone? Where have you fallen? Is how it's being understood. So it's not exactly the, the simplest relationship between the verse that proves the point and the point. Now, as for the other verse, that's a little easier to understand, and that is, Echa tamrucha chamima nachnu. Right? How could you say, this is in one of Jeremiah's uh, many rebukes, Jeremiah and all the prophets of Israel, their job is to rebuke the uh, Jewish people, and he says, how could you say we are wise? So it's directed specifically at them, and it's a form of rebuke. Now, it could just be that this verse is the verse that's used to prove um, you know, linguistically, so to speak, that Echa means rebuke. Um, but I, I see more meaning there that it's saying just as it's a rebuke in Jeremiah against the Jewish people, so too in Echa. But you're right, it is possible that we already see kind of the seeds of the rebuke of God, which is a troubling but idea that is going to appear in Medrash Echa that we're going to get to. So let's let's leave it there. But regardless of how we understand, you know, the uh, the two approaches, I would, I, would, I would classify them as follows. One is Eicha that doesn't really ask a question. It's a non-interrogative Eicha, simply alas. While the other approach is Eicha, which is a question. Perhaps it's a question for God. Perhaps it's a question for the Jewish people. It's rebuke. It's an Eicha that kind of wants to move in the direction of an answer. Okay, that's source number one. Now, again, there are... I think there are two major approaches towards the big riddle of the Sefer. How could this destruction have occurred, and how could it have occurred to such a great extent? I don't like to say which approach is dominant, but it does seem that the dominant approach is the traditional um, tochacha way of looking at things. Very, you know, very simple, schar and onesh, you do a good deed, you are rewarded, you do a bad deed, and you're punished. And that is an approach that's kind of fleshed out um, in detail in source number two. This is now the second pasuk of the Sefer, right? Echa ha'ita lamas, 
how it should become a tributary, how it should become a, a land that is that you know sends taxes to the the um, the um, the more important nation. And here we have uh, as follows: Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Kevan Sha'avru Yisrael Al Tznai Shekiblu B'Sinai Lefika Chaytalamas. Rabbi Yochanan said, since Israel transgressed the conditions that they accepted on Sinai, Sinai was a contract that the Jewish people entered into with God. Since they transgressed that, they became a tributary. They became mas. Because Sinai equals lamas. The calculation of this one is like the calculation of that one. So just like Sinai is 60 plus 50 plus 20, so too lamas is the same number if you look at the gematria. So he basically shows there's equivalency. The reason why you became lamas is because you disregarded Sinai. Said Rabbi Shmuel, once the Jews worshipped idols, they became a tributary. So now we're getting a little more specific. The first approach, Rabbi Yochan, is simply, you sin, you're punished, and that's how this specific punishment took place, Lamas. But now we get more specific. Rabbi Shmuel said, it was Avodah Zarah that caused this to happen. Again, now we're really officially talking about Chorban Bait, we've shown the first destruction. It was idolatry. How do we know this? Semel equals Lamas. Semel, a sign or a statue, so to speak, some representation of a god, is the equivalent of Lamas. Same gematria, same value. The let, but more than that, the letters of this one are like the letters of that one. Each word contains the same letters. And Rabbi Yacha said, indeed, it is the reverse of Semel. In other words, Lamas is what leads to Semel, I'm sorry, Semel is what leads to Lamas, and you simply reverse the word around. The rabbi said, a melting, this is a difficult idea, and the Mepharshim struggle to understand what this means, and we're going to leave it for right now. So we have a catalog, a very short catalog, we'll see a much longer catalog in a few minutes, that describes the different sins that might have led to the Kharban. And now we have a very interesting story. If anyone wants to read this, from where we left out off. This is what Ukva said. Any volunteers to read this? Do I see a hand in the corner? Or was it a half hand? No. No hand? Yeah. Thank you. Um, Ukva said, On the evening of the ninth of Av, um, Abraham entered the Holy of Holies and started pacing its length and width. The Holy One, blessed be He, grabbed him and asked, What has my beloved to do in my house? Okay, so... Right. Now, well, I'll just stop you right there before you continue. This verse, Jeremiah 11.15, does anyone happen to have a Tanakh in front of them? I should have... Okay. Could someone read the, uh, the verse, the entire verse? Because it'll really explain where this Midrash is coming from. This is a common Midrashic technique where it, it's not just that there are stories that are told of things that happened in the past, but there are stories that seem to emerge from an interpretation of Sukim that come from elsewhere. Right? So right now we're trying to understand the book of Eicha, but we're using a Pasuk in Yirmiyahu to then understand what's going on in our section in Eicha. Um, and each, each element is, is going to be um, explained. So could you read that? That's, uh, it should be Yud Aleph Tetvav. Yeah, unless you have English. Do you have English? Hmm? Okay, so we'll do it in Hebrew. Okay. 
Okay, so let me just translate that very briefly. What is my beloved to do in my house? It's the first part of the Pasuk. Um, seeing she has committed lewdness with many is the next part of the Pasuk. Um, and they did not have circum... I'm sorry. And um, the holy flesh has passed from you. Um, and according to the Midrash, the way they interpret this is when it is bad, then you rejoice. So we have a Pasuk broken down into four different sections, which is going to then inform the story about Avram. So let's go back to the story again. Avram is in the Beit HaMikdash pacing. It's really a fast in the Holy of Holies. He's obviously come back from the dead or there's some... This is long after Avram lived, right? This is the night of Tisha B'Av. And he's pacing back and forth, really a striking image. And God grabs him and says, what is my beloved to do in my house? Okay, so what's Avram's response? Avram said, where are my children? He said, they have sinned a great sin, and I have exiled them. As it says, soon she has committed lewdness with many. Right, you can actually, I shouldn't have put the words with many there. Simply, soon she has committed lewdness. Okay. Abraham said, and were there not amongst the righteous ones? He said, the majority are bad, as it says, with men. Right, so that's the next part of the Pasuk. Good. <laughs> and did they not have circumcision as a merit? He said, even that they have nullified. As it said, and the holy flesh is passed from you. And not only that, but they rejoice when their fellow floundered. As it says, when it is bad, then you rejoice. Okay, so let's stop there. First of all, what does this story remind you of? Stop. Yes. It's really an incredible story. It's not just a story about Avram being upset at God as to where the Jewish people are. They're exiled, and then he learns why they were exiled. But it recreates, it reenacts a different event in Avram's life that appears in Tanakh, where he's actually arguing for the... Um, for Sodom to be saved. And that this isn't just simply kind of a midrashic jump, the comparison between Jews and Sodom, but it actually appears in some of the Aftarot that, we are, that we're reading now during the period of the three weeks, in Yeshayahu, in Yirmiyahu, I believe as well, this comparison, this painful comparison of the Jewish people to Sodom. And Avram is basically there um, trying to save the Jewish people just as he had tried to save Sodom. God's response, again, are very much what we've been seeing until now. There are specific things that they did, terrible things, as a, as a matter of fact. They committed lewdness with many. Let's call that erva. They, um, they, this is a new one, which usually doesn't appear in the catalog. They no longer, somehow, somehow they have nullified circumcision. This could mean a number of things. Um, and not only that, kind of the icing on the cake is that they rejoice when something happens bad to their fellow. Even when you would think they're, they're at least a nation at the end of the day, they're one people. No, they don't even have that. And that the story stops there. We don't hear Afram's response, which also is interesting if you think of it in relationship to Sodom. There, in this story, Avram really just has one other attempt. He says, you know, is every, there are no righteous among them, which is exactly what he said with Sodom. And God says, no, the multitude and the majority of them are bad. That's surprising because Avram really struggled to say a 50, 45, 40, etc., etc. And here, the Medrash doesn't record him as saying that. Okay, let's leave that aside and then go to the last part, which again continues this theme that Eich has a language of rebuke and the way I'd like to understand it is the rebuke of the Jewish people. Why is Miguel Eicha recited in the order of the alphabet? Right, as you know, 
if you can follow Eicha um, and, and see that it actually goes according to the letters of the alphabet with one parak, the third parak actually um, do, spending three times on each letter. So he says, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nechemi, and the rabbis disagree, though it's not entirely clear what their disagreement is. Rabbi Yehuda said, because they transgressed the Torah from A to Z, from Aleph and Zaltav, therefore it is recited from A to Z. In other words, we have much more than simply the fact that they, Sinai and Lamas, they didn't keep their bargain at Sinai, much more than simply they did a Fodazara, much more than these things that God listed, these three things, but we have just a catalog, you know, kind of like the Al-Chait on Yom Kippur, you look at the Al-Chait, which is also in alphabetical order, and you get the sense that collectively the Jewish people sin from A to Z, unfortunately we're very good at that, and we have the same thing going on here, that's Rabbi Yehuda's approach. Now, Rabbi Nechemia said, and this is my interpretation, because I'm trying to find difference between the three opinions. Usually when you have a list like that, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nechemia, and Rabbanan, that means they disagree. So Rabbi Nechemia said, because they all transgressed the Torah, I added the word all, as it says, all Israel has transgressed your law. In other words, the way I'd like to understand this is that it's not simply all the mitzvot are being transgressed, but all of the Jews are transgressing. I might be incorrect in that. And then the Rabbanan seems to say something very similar to Rabbi Yehuda, so I don't really know what the difference is, because they sinned against the Torah from A to Z. The only difference being, if you look at back at the Hebrew, that Rabbi Yehuda uses the word She'avru aleh me'alaf yadtav, and the Rabbanan say She'chatu me'alaf yadtav. I don't really know what the difference is, and we'll leave that for now. And finally, source number three, just to kind of drive home the point, that Eicha... Um, is seen by some as a language of rebuke of the Jews, and that the riddle of the book of Eicha can be solved by just looking at the sins they committed, is in source number three. And this then interprets a, um, the third pasuk um, in, in Eicha, that, that Yehuda has been exiled, Galta Yehuda Me'oni. What is Me'oni? It seems that the Sefer itself, depending on how you want to read it, is explaining is solving the riddle, is saying, I'll tell you why they were, um, they were exiled, me'oni. At least that's how Chazal want, under, want to understand the puzzle. And now we have a catalog of very specific sins. So, for example, al she'achal chametz pesach There's a bad one. They ate chametz and pesach Therefore, they were exiled. And how does this work? So the classic midrashic technique Something like with Exera uh, Shava, you match two different words in two different places. The word um, Oni is used describing aspects of Pesach. You're supposed to eat Lechem Oni. And instead of eating Lechem Oni, they ate Chametz. And that's what Me Oni refers to. Or another one. Al there's a law that if one lends to a poor person and takes collateral, one can't go into the poor person's house to collect the collateral, but the whole process has to be done with more dignity for the poor person. And the, uh, and the argument is, is that the Jews th- were not practicing this important mitzvah. And indeed, you have the word vimish ani, if there's a poor person. So from them not treating poor people properly, galta yuda me'oni, that's what called the gal- caused the galut, that's what caused the exile. And then you have a, another similar thing, withholding wages, which uses the word ani. You have stealing from the gifts to the poor, which again is a play in the word ani, oni. 
eating Meiser Ani, which is the special tithe um, that's given during certain years of the Shemitah cycle to poor people. There you have it. You have a whole list of different sins. And finally, and this is where I'd like to pick up, because they worshipped idols. So that's something that we had seen before, and that's really part of the classical account of how the Chorban happened. Classically, and this it's, it's really become classical because this is the Gemara's main approach, the three big sins were what caused the destruction of Bayit Rishon. Right? And there seems to be there seems to be coming back over and over again to Avodah So there we have it, another one, another sin that they could have done. And the, the proof that Me'oni can be in Avodah is from when um, Moshe is coming down the mountain after God says, you better get down there. He says, Kol anot I hear the sound of anot, I won't translate that which is understood here to mean kol kilus the praising, the answering, the responsive worship of idols is what I hear, and that's how we can understand the word meoni to refer to idols. So again, we have a list. It's a much more detailed list. There are other examples of this in Medrashech as well. But then you have the last line, which kind of brings a new theological principle or a different theological principle into the mix that makes, makes one think and makes one think that maybe there are other ways of understanding how the Chorban could happen. There are other ways of solving the riddle of Eicha. And that's the last line of that source, again, source number three. Rabbi Yehuda b'shem Rabbi Yossi Omer, Ein lecha dor v'dor she'enu notel mi shel egel. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rabbi Yossi, there is no generation that does not partake of the sin of the golden calf. Now, it's an interesting principle. It's an interesting theological idea. And there are a few things going on in that theological idea. First of all, even though it seems to be working off of the interpretation of Oni as Avodah Zarah, it doesn't say that the Jews of that generation were being punished by the Avodah Zarah that they committed. In other words, there's a sense that Rabbi Huda doesn't think it's enough to, to simply say they sinned in a certain way in that generation, Therefore, they were punished in that generation. But you have this other idea, this fascinating idea, that there still are holdover sins from back in the day, way back in the day from the Chet Egel, which is, you know, for some perhaps even more troubling. In other words, not only do you have to worry about what you've done, but you have to worry about what your ancestors did um, at the foot of Har Sinai. And... Regardless, though, there is the sense that there's a need to account for um, the destruction in a way that doesn't just place blame on the people in front of you. Because, again, I'm kind of talking for Rabbi Yehuda, it seems like you need to do more to justify how this terrible thing could have happened. So maybe they did eat chametz and Pesach, Rabbi Yehuda would say. Maybe they did, you know, A to Z. But that still isn't enough. You have to somehow say that there was an extra thing thrown into the mix, and that is the sin of the golden calf. We'll leave that for now, and there's much to discuss with that principle, but just see sort of an opening in the sense that it doesn't always work that simply where the, schar, the way Schar and Onish operate is a very simple equation. You do X and you get Y. There's actually a lot more going on, and Rabbi Yehuda kind of opens up the door in that direction. Now, what we're interested in today, if we want to kind of use one word to describe it, ultimately, is rage, right? And there's going to be different kinds of rage that we're going to see. There's a rage that we'll talk about of the Jews against God. How could God have done this? 
But first there's an understanding of that there's a rage of God. In other words, this isn't simply, if we're to use a mashal, of someone kind of disciplining their child without any anger, but just because they need to do it. But there's a sense that there's af Hashem, that there's a rage of Hashem that almost defies logical explanation that's taking place during this korban. And that is what we really start seeing in source, uh, it is source number four, but I didn't number it, um, at the bottom of the, that same page. Now I mentioned uh, in the first class that there are really two parts of Medrash Eicha. The main part that we're spending most of our time on is the exegetical midrash that explains verse by verse what different words mean and what different how different what different psukim mean. The first part, though, is called the patichtot. There are 32, I think, or maybe 36, depending on how you uh, calculate them. 36 different proems that try to understand Eicha as a whole and the tragedy as a whole. In other words, we might call them homiletical midrash as opposed to exegetical midrash. Midrash uh, interested in kind of discussing a big issue and using the, the, the model of a homily to do so. This comes from there, from the beginning of that section, um, and it uses a pasuk in Yirmiyahu to understand the tragedy of Eicha. The pasuk is, Thus said the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning woman that they may come. Okay. It's a very strange image, if you think about it. God is calling for mourning women. These are professional, they used to be professional mourners who would come to funerals. And God is calling these women to come to the funeral, the destruction, the terrible thing that's going to happen. It's a very strange image. And part of what the Medrash is trying to do is explaining how that, mit, that image works and what it's trying to say. So Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, it may be likened to a king who had two sons. And, and look at how kind of God's punishment is now depicted. He became enraged against the first, took a stick and thrashed him so that he writhed in agony and died. So this isn't simply a parent who's upset with their son and maybe you know, 100 years ago, might even be employing corporal punishment. But this is a parent who employs corporal punishment of their child to the extent that they kill them. So what happens? He seems to have regrets, and he began to mourn for him. So he mourns for that first son. It's a troubling story. It's a troubling mashal. But it gets much more troubling. He then became enraged against the second. Now, you would think that when he's enraged against the second son, he'll remember how he ended up abusing his child and killing them and maybe use a different approach, a different way of teaching his child a lesson. But what happens? And he took a stick and thrashed him so that he writhed in agony and died. So he basically does the same thing. He kind of falls into the same trap. So at this point, the king is kind of emotionally exhausted. He said, no longer have I the strength to lament over them. So call for the mourning woman and let them lament over them. In other words, it seems that, yes, this was a common phenomenon to have these professional mourning women, but they would really be needed in a situation like this story, this mashal, where the king isn't really able to mourn. He's so exhausted. He's so, I don't know what. He's so overcome with what he just did twice that he needs professionals. He needs to call in the professionals. Okay, so there's the mashal. And in mashal form, it's very innocuous because it's just talking about some anonymous king. But it gets much more troubling when we move to the nimshal. Similarly, 
When the ten tribes were exiled, he began to lament over them. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. So in other words, the first lamentation for the, for the exile of the ten tribes, God actually engages in himself. God mourns himself. When Judah and Benjamin were, exi- were exiled, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, if we dare say so, I'm sorry, yes, when Judah and Benjamin were exiled, in other words, the last two tribes, the Holy One, blessed be, be he, said, and now the rabbi is saying, if we dare say so, no longer have I the strength to lament over them, saying, thus said the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning woman that they may come, etc., etc., um, and it quotes the rest of the verse. So let me just point out linguistically, there are a few funny things that happen. The mashal nimshal seem to work as most mashalim and nimshalim work. We have the mashal that describes the king killing, ultimately killing his two children and not being able to mourn over the second one. And the nimshal is accounting for different psukim in Tanakh where the first tragedy is mourned by God, whereas the second tragedy, the remaining, the exile of the remaining two tribes is not mourned by God, but is rather mourned by um, these professional women. That's how the mashal nimshal works. But there are those few words that are thrown in here, if we dare say so, right? This is kind of a lucid translation of... Um, or is it not in the version that I, that I quoted here? Where's Kaviyachal? There we go. The Kavan call you Binyamin Kaviyachal Amar Kadesh Baruch It's as if. Now the as if here is clearly functioning um, to kind of soften an anthropomorphic problem. Normally we don't like depicting God in human terms, and it's a very human way of depicting God by saying that he's calling for professional morning women, just like we in late antiquity call for professional morning women, or in the ancient world call for professional morning women. Therefore, Kaviyachal, we kind of soften that. But there's another kaviyachal that has to be said here, and maybe this kaviyachal covers two bases, I don't know. And that is, if you really think about how this mashal and nimshal work, it's a very, very provocative and troubling way of talking about God. In other words, God is depicted as a king who is basically unable to control his rage. I don't think, no matter what a child does, that a parent would ever want to kill the child, no matter what, no matter what he does. And yet the king is, you know, seems, and in the mashal, this is how it seems to work. The king is striking him probably just to chastise him, but ends up killing him. And that happens once and it happens twice. And I will say myself, kafi yachol, it seems that the Midrash is saying that God is operating the same way. The point of the Midrash may be to explain why he's calling for the morning woman, but there's a very troubling message there as well that God is kind of overcome with rage the same way this king is overcome with rage. So that's one aspect of the rage here, the rage from God's end. And it's a way also of coming to terms with the situation of the destruction, you know, yourself. That what's happened here is is the result of, it seems to be the result of rage. Again, I'll just say the and it'll work for the rest of the class. What happened... What happens here in the Chorban of Bayi Rishon, which is what Chazal are interested in interpreting, or in the Chorban of Bayi Sheni, which Chazal are inter- interested in interpreting, though in an experiential sense, we can't explain this as merely punishment, as simply chastisement, but it's much, it, it's gotten out of hand. It's rage. It's something that has really 
become much more than God may have even intended it to be. As the Mashal works, the father chastises the child and ends up killing him, and chastises the child again, another child, and ends up killing him again. I get the sense that there is an attempt to, it's not really coming to terms, but really attribute something like rage, which defies normal rational explanation and a normal calculation of you do A and you get B. That's my understanding. It's provocative, so let's discuss before we move on. Yes. Of course. So, I mean, that's not, that's rage, you know. Correct. But normally, what I would say is normally, you know, there's a sense that you do certain things incorrectly and you get punished. Perhaps the punishment will be capital punishment in a system of law. But what happens when you use a mashal like this and you place it as a father and a son, a king and his prince, it gets a little more complicated. Again, the king is probably trying to chastise his son and ends up killing him. In other words, the things that happened in Bamidbar could be the Jews did something that deserved death, and they got death. Here, though, the sense is the Jews deserve to be chastised, to be struck with the rod, and instead they got killed. right? And killed is kind of a way of saying the extent of the destruction. Yes? You know, when you think of all of, say, the Yomiyahu, where Yomiyahu warns the people over and over and over, to end with that this is going to happen. Right. So it's, it's not, it's not it's understandable. Right. Well, I agree. There is that approach and there is that sense that's, that you find throughout the Medrash that there is a way of accounting for it. But as we're going to see, and this was just really a setup, that there are, there are things that are said where as much as they deserved what was coming to them, the extent of the destruction. And if you read accounts, whether you know, they be Jewish accounts like Josephus or other accounts of the level of destruction, especially after the Second Revolt, you might ask questions, and kind of the elephant in the room here today is the Holocaust, but whenever you have a tragedy that simply defies imagination, there are questions that can be asked that you don't necessarily ask when, you know, you're talking about a more minor chastisement. One more point, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Right. And the second, and you know, saying that that's true about you know the Jewish people situation, the current you know the current situation, also well what was the current situation? And I think it's very disturbing because they're saying that sort of there's no hope. Right. That you're gone. Right. If you want to read that the the mashal literally, it is very disturbing because death in the mashal is supposed to symbolize the exile of the ten tribes, and there then if you would also say death would God forbid symbolize also what happens to the other two tribes. Maybe, yeah, but, I, but there's much more hope and we'll get to the hope, but yes, there are moments in despair when one could say such a thing and obviously, ultimately, hopefully come to consolation. Okay, let's, let's move on and just briefly talk about the lawlessness um, of the destruction. That's in the next source, <coughs> Echa Rabbah, and this is from the third Pasuk of Echa which is a long section, but it's interpreting a verse in Tehillim. Right? The arrogant have dug pits for me contrary to your law. Now in biblical Hebrew, Torah doesn't have to mean Torah, the thing that stands in the Aron, but it could mean a teaching, it could be law more generally, that sort of thing. The Medrash, though, takes it literally and really to 
fascinating results where the arrogance, the enemies, have done to me against your law, against the Torah, against what the Torah teaches. They didn't simply destroy and pillage, but they went against the Torah when they did this. Listen to what he says. Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana said, to cut down an infant outside, and now uses a verse in Jeremiah to explain what happened, not in the synagogues, and young men in the streets, not in the study halls. And it says, he killed the young men by the sword in their temple and had no pity. And it says to not take a mother with the children, yet it says mothers and children were smashed on the rocks. So let's just, I added the word rocks there. Let's just talk about that thing that I just read. There's a halacha in the, in, in, in the, uh, in the Torah that one can't take the mother and, and, and its offspring at the same time. And yet, that's exactly what the enemy did. That fulfills contrary to your law. That's what it means when it says in the verse, contrary to your law. Or another example of Rabbi Yehudah, Rabbi Simon. He has a couple of examples. Similar one, do not slaughter. This is talking about shrita. One is not allowed to kill a mother and its offspring on the same day. And yet, you can see in the Hebrew, that's exactly what they did. Another one that Rabbi Yehudah, Rabbi Simon said, a chicken that you would eat, you should spill its blood and cover with dirt. We have a halacha, a very clear law that in Shrita, when you shecht a bird, one has to cover the dirt from the Shrita. And yet it says, their blood flowed like water around Jerusalem with no one to bury it. In other words, the way things happened was against the law. Rabbi Brachia said, the Israelite congregation said to God, you give burial to donkeys and not to the Jews. And then it explains exactly what this means, which we don't have time to really look into, but it basically shows that even the... Egyptian oppressors who were compared to donkeys received burial ultimately, and that's an interesting um, medrash as well. These Jewish people did not receive burial. So I want to talk about what just happened here. It seems that it's really accusations, just at least until the very end, accusations lodged against the enemy, right? In Bayit Rishon, it's lodged against, you know, Babylonia. The Babylonians did things against the Torah, right? But the Babylonians don't have to keep the Torah. The Babylonians, even from a, you know from Chazal's perspective, could be you know people who keep the Shiva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, and they don't have to shecht a chicken and cover its blood. What's going on here? It seems that there's a sense that the way that the, the destruction took place defies logical, rational accounting for explanation. And ultimately kind of points back at God, which is what happens in the last line. Who is supposed to basically be accountable for making sure that the non-Jews, while they're carrying out their punishment, stick to the law, right? God, one would think. If you know this idea is true that, the, that, the, that, that Bavel is supposed to be God's rod of chastisement, okay, so work according to the law. But that's not what happens, right? Things get out of control, like we saw before. There's a rage that is not simply, you know, uh, a, a, a slap on the wrist with a ruler, but, you know, ultimately kills the child. And here as well, instead of kind of sticking to the rule book, if this was truly a tit for a tat, things go out of con- get out of control. And that's actually ultimately what we see in the last line, that the line is placed in B'nai Israel's mouth and it is hurled as an accusation at God. In other words, kill us, destroy us, you know, maybe we deserve it, maybe we did everything wrong, but ultimately, at least give us burial. Everyone has a right to burial. 
even donkeys. And it seems initially the Medrash is really talking about talking about real donkeys. Even donkeys are bar- are buried. They're not just laid out there. And certainly human beings should be buried. So there's a sense that what's happening is against the rules. It's unjust. And um, another example where again you have the accusation hurled at God. <clears throat> this is from later in the in the first parak. Look around and see if there is suffering like my suffering. Right? It's a pasuk from Eicha. You have not brought on any nation what you have brought upon me. You have not been particular with any nation to the extent that you have been particular with me. So this first part is trying to say, and it really it's it's a pretty fair interpretation of the verse according to Pshat or the broader meaning of the verse. You know, look around and see if there is suffering like my suffering. Jerusalem or the Jewish people are looking at nations of the world and they're kind of looking at the history of these nations and it's the it's what we all know that we have we are a nation that have suffered tremendously greater you know greater than all of these other nations so first of all you've done more to us than you've done to anyone else you've been more particular with us this kind of gives a, a, another spin of things that maybe there's a reason why God expects more of us but still there's a sense that things are unfair and finally, the last part of the Puzzik is interpreted, Asher Olali, right, which has re- literally means that was severely dealt, is interpreted to mean the kataf olalti velo kataf olalatehon. That you have kind of cut off my offspring, you've even attacked my children, and you haven't attacked their offspring. In other words, even when, supposedly, even when God destroys these other people, these nations, and maybe they deserve what they get, they're destroyed, but it doesn't go to the next generation. It isn't unfair. This is seen somehow as unfair. Okay, so we basically have really moved in a very different direction. We started with a sense that Eicha is a lashon of tochacha, of rebuke, and also a sense that you can really find which specific Averot led to um, these specific punishments. Then we saw that it's not so simple. First with Rabbi Yehuda throwing into the mix the sin that, was, that took place thousands of years ago, which means that ultimately the punishment now can't be fully accounted for with the sins of the present. And then we saw what, much more than that. We saw kind of things opening up. God is acting out of rage. It's not simply chastisement, but things are getting out of hand. It's lokatoratecha. It's against the laws. It's against how things are supposed to happen. Even the most basic aspect of burial has not been given, given to the Jews, which interestingly enough, is given according to the Medrash of Betar, but it seems in Yerushalayim they don't get buried. Um, and, and, um, and, and finally here, there's you know, more of a sense that things are unfair. Now there are other, just we'll sort of take a quick break here, because there are other kinds of accusations that one finds in Eicha, and you could think of them in the genre of accusations that we've seen until now. I only give you a few examples, but where questions are asked of God. I want to look at one source, not because it really fits so well with what we're doing, but it just fascinates me um, in terms of what the message of this, this medrash is. It's another kind of accusation hurled at God, but an interesting one. And I think one that has, that, that makes us think a lot about where our position in the world today. This is talking about Pasuk Chaf Aleph and Perak Aleph. That it says, Kiata Asita, you have done it. You have created this destruction. So we have a mashal. Rabbi Levi said, it can be compared to a noble woman 
to whom the king, in other words, her husband, said, do not lend anything to your neighbors and do not borrow anything from them. In other words, the king said, you're my wife, you're in my palace, you don't need to help out other people outside the palace and you certainly don't need to come on to their, um, their favors, you don't need them to give you anything, you just stick with me and it'll all be good. One time, the king got angry with her and kicked her out of the palace. She went to the neighbors and they did not take her in. She returned to the palace and the king said, you acted insolently. What do you expect? I had to kick you out. You acted inappropriately. Listen to this. She said to him, you were the one that did it. That you said, do not lend anything to the neighbors nor borrow anything from them. If I had lent that to them and they borrowed from me, one of them would have seen me in the house and would they not have taken me in? So again, and this actually is a pattern that is worth studying. You often find things said in Mashalim and Midrash that would never be said outright. But there's an accusation hurled at God, which we'll see is a kind of funny accusation in a second. But it's an accusation hurled at God that you have given us a Torah that really has separated us from everyone else in the world. Okay, that's your prerogative and we accepted it. But then you have to take care of us no matter what. Because we, because we are now a nation apart because of this Torah, no one is going to help us. We're, we're, you know, if you cast us out, that's it. But look at what happens with the mashal and the, the nimshal, the way they explain it, in a very specific way. So too, with the nation, when the nations of the world exiled the Jews to every place, any place they fled to, they cl- was closed to them. And unfortunately, this resonates uh, in the contemporary context as well, where doors were closed to Jewish um, emigres during the Second World War. In the east, west, north, and south, and then there are psukim that describe how this happens. So God says to Israel, it's your fault. You have acted instantly. So in other words, even in this Midrash, it may be that the, the, you know, the position is, yes, we, we sinned, and we were punished, and it was fair. We did A, and we got B, and that's, that's how it works. And that's what, that's what God is saying. You acted insolently, and this is what you get. But the response is, nevertheless, you're right. We did act improperly, and we should be punished. But to be cast out like this is unfair. Israel said before God, and did you not do it? In other words, you made a, you gave, you placed us in a position where we were different from anyone else. That you said, do not marry them. Your daughter do not give to his son, and his daughter do not take for your son. If we had married our sons to their daughters or taken their daughters for our sons, one of them would have been an in-law with a child with them. Would they not have taken us in? This explains you have done it. So the Medrash is focusing specifically on the laws of intermarriage and saying by kind of keeping us in the corner, by keeping us out of the, you know, out, out of uh, mixing with the nations of the world, with the people of the world, when you threw us out, it was impossible for us to survive. No one wanted to be with us. We're too different. And therefore, you have basically, you have to take us in. So it's it, this Midrash is not really moving exactly in the same direction of it's not fair. Maybe the punishment is fair. But still, because God gave us a Torah that led to a situation where no one wanted us in their house, he has to take care of us ultimately. Okay. Before, you know, kind of winding towards the end here, I think kind of there are, there are highlights. Highlights usually has a positive connotation, but there are kind of climaxes of um, these experiences in Eicha. And this, this seems to be one of them. 
The Pasuk in Echa says, Parsat Sion Biadea, right? That Zion stretches out her hands. And this seems to be the ultimate you know, feeling as to what is going on here, and it really connects well with the mashal about the king. Listen to this. Kadam, so again, simply, what does it mean that Zion is stretching out her hands? What what does the gesture mean? Right? How do we interpret the gesture and and what's the meaning of the gesture? Kadam So one approach is that it's basically the image is supposed to be this kind of pathetic image. You're raising someone's drowning in the in the river and they raise up their hands to be saved, right? Please, God, save me. And that, I think, is a pretty realistic understanding as to what was going on. But look, listen to this. Rabbi Yeshua de Sichnin Meshim Rabbi Levi, and here we have again a mashal. Mashal Melech Shekasal Beno, Havi Machele Vahavi Sarchit, according to other versions of this, he said, Sarchit, that there was a king who was angry on his son, and he was hitting him. Okay, we, we, we've heard this one before. And he sinned, or the, uh, according to the better versions, it is the father, the son said, I have sinned. He admitted, I have sinned. In the end, the son who's being hit basically holds his hands out in front of him. He says to the king, I'm all yours. Hit me as much as you want. That's what it means, parsat Sion that Sion has stretched out her hands. It's a very, very powerful image. It's the sense that, you know, God, you're chastising me, you're hitting me, you're punishing me, maybe I deserve it, sarchet, I've sinned, I've done something evil, but, it, okay, I'm all yours, you want to hit me, you want to destroy me, I'm all yours. Now let's just take a few minutes before we end here and think about what, what that means, I'm all yours. What, and, and what is the mashal getting at? In a way, it's related, I think, to the mashal of the king and his two sons. But in a way, it's not. What does someone mean when he's being beaten up and he says, I'm all yours? Kind of what's like the cultural meaning there? I give up, and therefore... Right. So it's a, it could be just a statement of fact. I'm powerless. Right. Whenever you, you know, when you have someone who's harming you, if it's a human, maybe you might be able to strike them back. But especially with God, I am absolutely powerless. But what else is it? It's. And therefore, you should pity me. Right. I think it's also it's a sense of pity. You're all powerful. You're all, you're omnipotent. You want to destroy me? Okay. You're able to. I'll admit that. But at least pity me. Or one other kind of angle on it that I think is possible, especially in light of the last story, of, of the, the mashal that we saw with the king and the two sons. In other words, you can kill me, but do you really want to kill me? You won't have anybody else. Right? Do you really want to just strike me down and kill me? Like that story with the king and his two sons? Right? I'm all yours. You've shown that you're powerful and that you can do it, and maybe that we deserve it. But is that really what you want? There are different ways of kind of interpreting that gesture. It's almost like what Moses said when, when he broke the Rukot, and he said, you can destroy us, but what will the nation say? Right. We, you, you need us just like we need you. Correct, exactly. In other words, you are physically capable of doing it, but is this something that you really want? We're kind of out of time. Um, and I, I wanted to put something on the handout that I didn't get to do, but I'll describe it. 
Uh, anyway, I guess I could give another reading recommendation for the summer. Usually, when I'm a very narrow-minded person. When I'm teaching one thing, I have a hard time doing something else. So we're doing Eferaba, and we're doing the world of Medrash, but there are obviously you know, more contemporary parallels that one can think of, particularly during the Holocaust. And I've recently been working through, um, it's now a pretty well-known work, part of Clonimus Kalman Shapira, Eish Kodesh. These are the lectures that this, he was the rabbi of the Warsaw Ghetto, collected um, during the Holocaust and hid, and which were ultimately found by, I think, a Polish construction worker and were then turned in to the authorities after the war and ultimately made their way to Israel and were published. And he's simply, they're, I mean, incredible drashot where he tries to comfort his community and give them meaning, but there are also a lot of questions and a lot of kind of passages that are very similar to this one, where he sort of throws up his hands, as it were, and he says, God, what do you want? But I wanted to put on the page for you, and the reason why I didn't is because I couldn't find a copy of the actual manuscript. It's somewhere on the internet. But we have his manuscript, and he describes the, 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 what's unfolding then, the destruction in Europe in light of what happened in Bayeshev. But there are two stages to the way he does this. First, he says to his congregation, we are suffering, what's happening is terrible, but it's happened before, right? You look at the Midrashim and Bayit Sheni, you can see the extent of what happens, and that's what he writes. He pretty much finishes the work, Esh Kodesh, in, um, I think, the spring of 1941. Seems to put it aside because the Drashot ends. He doesn't add more to, to the collection. But then he crosses out two passages, those passages which I just said, where he tries to explain that um, you know what's happening now has happened before. And he says it hasn't happened before. The level of destruction is much more than in Korban Bayit Rishon. This is in 1941. Okay? It's, it's frightening when you think about it like that. There were many more years of um, destruction that defies imagination. And he basically, kind of like this sense of where he crosses it out and he writes this little footnote, is, is a way of basically saying, I can't solve the riddle. In other words, I can't explain what's going on at all. It doesn't work according to what we normally subscribe to. The normal system of Scarva Onish is a, is a system of meaning. It's a solution to the riddle of life. And yet there are times, you know, in the Warsaw Ghetto and in Bayit Sheni, where one gets the sense that it's impossible, really, to, to, um, to explain what's going on, and it's impossible to get, really give it meaning. Now, hopefully it's not impossible, ultimately, to find some meaning in the event, but there is the moment, and there are moments of, you're right, I never noticed that, where the Medrash seems to be completely giving up and compares even the two, you know, as we heard before, the, the remaining two tribes as, you know, lost and dead, God forbid. But there are those moments when, as we saw at the beginning, Eicha, that word Eicha must be left as simply Lashon Kina. It's not a question, right? It's not, it's not anything that's trying to find an answer. It's simply mourning because that's all we can do. That's all we're capable of doing. We don't have time to look at the last source. It's well known. I'm sure all of you know it. It's the story that most of us know as Khan and her seven sons. Small scholarly aside, the earlier sources don't call this woman Khana. That's, it might even have come from association between Hanukkah and Khana. All the Midrashim 
um, referred to her as Miriam. The story appears in Sefer Maccabim as simply but anonymous woman. And this is the story of how how her children are sacrificed one by one. It's a very powerful and moving story, and it appears in Medrash Eicha. The way you know, the way this story progresses from one to seven is powerful, but especially what happens at the end, and I'm just going to refer to this briefly. We won't read it inside. His seventh son is being taken to to be killed, and basically everything is ending. And finally, first of all, actually, I should just mention this ties in with what, with what we were saying before. The mother says, please sacrifice me with my child, because I don't want to see the death of my child. So what does he say? This is one, two, three, four, um, five, six, seven lines up from the bottom, in the middle of the line. Amor shalom, I can't fulfill this request of you asking me to kill you and your son on the same day so you don't see your last son's death. Doesn't it say in your Torah, I want to keep your Torah, doesn't it say, um, you know, don't slaughter a, a, a parent and its child in one day? So Amr Ototinok, that last son, which is clearly the sharpest son, says, Rasha, that's kind of another response to that source we saw. What you're so from that you that you that you kept all of the Torah that you're suddenly worried about this one again. It's interesting to place it with that other source that we saw as well, where the assumption was kind of yes, the non-Jew should be keeping the Torah. Immediately he kills her, and and I'm sorry, he kills him, and he doesn't kill her which basically isn't because he's such a firm guy, but because he wants her to suffer. And that's ultimately what happens. I just want to end with this depressing note, um, but hopefully working towards a consolation next week. This is just a couple lines up from the bottom. After a few days, the woman went crazy. She couldn't take what had occurred. And she threw herself out. She went up to the roof and she committed suicide. Okay. So what do they call? What do they call? Meaning Shemayim probably declares about her. The mother of the children is happy. Very strange pasuk to quote. This is in almost all of the versions of this story. And Ruach HaKodesh says, so not only is this a strange way to end the story, I mean, she's happy, she just lost her seven children, and she's not walking around, um, you know, proud of them, she commits suicide. Any, any takers on this one? This is like a, a true mystery to me. And not only that, the problem is, is that it's juxtaposed to what God says. God says, so Shemayim is saying about her, she's happy, but God is crying. Now, so first of all, we see here, and this is, you know, we'll take us into the next week, the sense that God is going to engage in forms of mourning, and the rage doesn't last. And like that, you know, like that king, he realizes, oh my, what have I done? But juxtaposed to the, the mother, I don't know, I can't say how she found meaning in this, in, in you know, in, in the in the martyrdoms of her seven children, but there is the sense, according to this midrash, that ema benim that sacrificial act 
And this story is repeated in Jewish history after the Crusades. If you look at the Crusade Chronicles, they mimic the language of this story. And maybe even the people, when they were engaging in these mass suicides, were actually mimicking the language of these Midrashim, right? When they were trying to avoid the, uh, the Crusaders. There is the sense that, yes, she throws herself as a parastion, but she's proud of what has happened, amazingly. She is happy. Her seven sons withstood this test. They were killed, and now she's dead. It couldn't be a more depressing kind of Shakespearean ending, if you'll excuse me. But like everyone at the end of the scene is just sprawled out on the stage. But at the same time, as much as maybe she is somehow, and Jews have found, meeting in martyrdom, God, though, is crying. Finally, so to speak, God is saying, Alela ni bochia, you might have found a way to find meaning here, but I, I am crying. This will leave the consolation. It might have been a little just disjointed today because these are very difficult issues to deal with, and it's kind of hard to wrap, wrap your head around all of, the, um, all of the things we have to think about. But again, ultimately, I think many of these stories are coming from a perspective that Echa is a lashon kina, in the sense that it doesn't ask a question which expects an answer, but it's simply a lass. Whether or not the Ema Banim Smicha occurs is another question, but yes, there is a question that's left un- unanswered, and the riddle remains you know, at the end of the book. Next week, we're going to talk about consolation, and the following week, we'll talk about hope. So, thank you. Yes, it has. <laughs>